Hello everyone, Simon here. Welcome to Philosophy Get Schooled. This is the episode on utilitarianism. You'll hear me introduce it properly in a moment after all the music, but I thought I'd say a few words before we get there. This was the first episode we did. Um, there's an awful lot here, um, mainly because utilitarianism is such a big topic. Um, so it seems like a long episode, but don't worry, we have broken into segments for you. So in the first segment, we think about normative ethics and then what utilitarianism is and thinking about the work and ideas of Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill. In the second segment, we continue with Mill and think about his proof of utility uh, and then also think about what type of utilitarian you might want to be, trading on some of the ideas we had in the first segment. And then in the third segment, we think about whether you should be utilitarian at all. And again, it picks up some of the ideas in the first two segments. So I hope you enjoy it. Anyway. Here's the music. Hello, welcome to Philosophy Gets Schooled. I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent. We're recording this episode in May 2022. Today's episode is all about utilitarianism. So we'll be thinking about classic utilitarians, such as Bentham and Mill, what sort of utilitarian you should be, and whether you should be utilitarian in the first place. We'll also see what else we get on to. Joining me in this episode, we have Paul Bridger from King Edward School in Birmingham. Hi, Paul. Hello. Uh, Dan McKee, teacher at King Edward School in Aston and writer at his own website, Philosophy Unleashed. Hi, Dan. Hello, everyone. And uh, Michael Platt from Harvey Grammar School in Folkestone. Hi, Michael. Hi, Simon. Hi, everybody else. Uh, great to have you all with us. Okay, so we're going to talk about utilitarianism today. Um, before we get on to that topic itself, um, let's talk about normative ethics in general, since utilitarianism is one of the major theories that's part of this broader topic. Um, Dan, do you want to give us a sense of how you explain normative ethics to your students, please? Yeah, I normally start a, a session on normative ethics by just asking them something really everyday and basic and, and ask um, if there's a problem. I say, you know, if I, after work, want to go and buy a chocolate bar and I go to the shop and I could buy, I don't know, a Mars bar or a Kit Kat, does it matter which, which chocolate I buy? And most times students will say, no, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. But then I say, well, well, what if we knew that one of those chocolate bars um, was from a company that treated their workers better than the other? So, you know, one of the companies paid them more, had better conditions and the, the others didn't. Would it matter then? And a few students start to say, you should probably support the, the company that, that treat their workers better. And I might ask them, you know, why there, or I might continue with other situations and say, well, does it matter if one of them is, you know, vegan and one of them isn't vegan? And wh whatever the different ways you could imagine lots of differences with, with two simple chocolate bars. And I sort of show that there are things you might consider and things you won't consider. But at some point for different students in the class, depending on the scenarios that you build, there starts to be a case where actually you, you ought to buy one of the chocolate bars and not the other. And though when I, when I get enough students sort of going, we ought to buy that one and not that one, I then sort of say, well, what does it mean that you ought to? Does that mean something terrible will happen if we didn't, if we bought the other one? Are we still free to buy the other chocolate bar? And again, we explore what, what that means. We, we can choose to not to do what we ought to do. 
but why ought we do the thing that we ought to do? Um, and then I also sort of compare it with other, other oughts. So I sort of say, well, what about you've got a television and you would like to switch it on and there is a remote control on the table. You really want to watch TV, you know, ought you pick up the remote control? And most of them would say, yes. Is that different than the chocolate bar you ought to buy? And then we sort of, again, explore those differences of like, what, what are different types of ought that we use in life? Where's the, the ethics coming in? And then we start talking about, you know, what is ethics and this idea of right and wrong? Most of the time, the students say that the television thing we ought to do because we want to switch on the television, but it doesn't really matter what we want. And there's no real ethical problem with that. With the chocolate bar, there wasn't an ethical problem until it suddenly became, well, we're supporting this company or that company. And then there start being these moral considerations of right and wrong. And we just sort of have a, a free roaming discussion really on what that pressure is to do what we ought to do and why we feel these these moral uh, ones that are about bigger issues of right and wrong are more compelling somehow than the non-moral ones or more complicated and confusing and then introduce that there are lots of ethical theories about what the answer to what we ought to do is and how we can calculate that and and figure it out so that's sort of what i tend to do um, as an effective way of getting people thinking about it Great. Um, and then just, just a kind of follow-up question for you, Dan, or for, for Michael or, or Paul. As you go through and start thinking about all these theories, do, do students find it more confusing or does it help? I mean, in my case, I, I always present it like these are the things that are going to help solve this problem. But uh-huh. I would say, yeah, at the end of any course, in any year group, when you introduce specific philosophical ethical theories to students, they tend to sort of go that just made everything far more complicated, which we can hopefully use as a critique of, of each of the theories later on. But yeah, I think most students that I've taught the theories to, and maybe it's a testament against my teaching, but they don't come out of it going, I am now a Kantian or utilitarian or whatever. And I, that's how I'm going to use my ethical theories from now on. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure it's nothing to do with your teaching at all, Dan. Paul, Michael, have you got any thoughts about normative ethics and what you do in the classroom? Well, I just sort of um, maybe jump in briefly on on Dan's point there about greater confusion. Um, maybe it's more clarified. Maybe they're more aware of why they're confused, or indeed that the issues that they're discussing are in fact confusing. But interestingly, I, I tend to find there's always a moment with a class when you're teaching them, where say you're we're going to do utilitarianism, utilitarianism in a minute, but where most of the class they suddenly have a moment of epiphany where they think, oh yeah, I've, I've sort of got where these utilitarian guys are coming from. And it seems almost self-evident that this is definitely what morality requires of us. And this is how one ought to live and organize one's life. Um, the same is true actually with, with Kantian ethics. And you have this kind of moment where you think, well, oh yeah, this is, you've just clarified and made precise what we mean by morality. And then, <laughs> and then what happens, of course, is you start to chip away at that certainty and you bring in some other counterexamples, some objections, and, and perhaps as we'll discover uh, during the course of this session, and then it goes back to the more informed confusion. So I like to think we do this thing of bringing, bringing the force of the theory to the students. And I think they do see it. They, you know, they say, oh, yeah, that's, that's where it's coming from. Because all of these you know, utilitarianism, uh, Kant, they, they do get something that seems to be important about our, our moral lives. They, they somehow sum up a way that you know, Dan's dilemma with the chocolate bar, they capture something important about it. And I do think that we get these nice moments of clarity when we see that, we see the force of each theory. But then, as Dan said, quite often the confusion or the lack of certainty. It's not not necessarily confusion, but you realise that 
it's not quite as easy as you've seen. But I do think we've taken the students and, and all the classes that I've taught go through this really nice progression, I think, from seeing initials. So Dan took a really simple example. You take a simple initial situation, you kind of problematize that, then you do gain clarity and then you get more interesting sets of problems emerging afterwards. And I think that's genuine progress in moral reasoning. So when we're thinking with all the university students, and obviously with normative ethics, we do an awful lot of normative ethics and I teach teach quite a lot of it. And so we're um, initially breaking it down into, look, there's intentions and there's personality and there's your virtues. We'll think about those in other sessions. There's the action itself. And that's what we're thinking about that in another session. And then, of course, there's there's another part of you know, the broad action, that's the consequences, right? You know, the things that happen because you've acted. And and just thinking about all of these theories that focus on one of these aspects can give you that clarity, but also, as we'll see, as we know, right, just focusing on one then creates lots of problems of how you're trying to work out what what you should do, but also what morality what morality is. Okay, good. So, oh, yeah, sorry, Michael, go on. Yeah, sorry, I just thought I'd... Uh... There's a couple of things that I think I'd echo what Dan and Paul said. First of all, it's the confusion. As long as students know what they're confused about, you know, that's that's progress, you know. Um, and secondly, I think that what I really like about Dan's example of buying the chocolate is a lot of students will come to A-level having done abortion and euthanasia at GCSE and ethics will be something that happens at the extremes. It happen, it, you know, they, they will come to A-level thinking, well, ethics is just stuff that happens when life gets difficult when you have really complex decisions to make. So I use something similar as well. I, I think there's a, um, a thought experiment in Julian Bugini's book. It probably isn't his, but his, he's compiled them about people sending letters and promising to send letters. And then one person, their letters get lost. Another person doesn't write the letters. Uh, another one, uh, through no fault of their own, just doesn't have time to write them. And it's to what extent is that an ethical decision, sending a letter or not sending a letter, being honest and not being honest? And I think part of my introduction to normative ethics is to get them to realise that ethics is something that runs through every day of your life rather than just the extremes, I suppose. Yeah, nice, nice point. Okay, great. So should we move on then and then think about utilitarianism? So we kind of explain, you know, we've explained normative ethics at least to ourselves, right? I don't know about anyone else listening in and we've got these sense of oughts and these everyday problems and possibly dilemmas and we've got this whole family of theories that focus on effects and consequences which we'll bring out I think in the course of our discussion should we go back to the historical roots then and think about Jeremy Bentham and then we might we might think about John Stuart Mill so Paul do you want to get us thinking about Jeremy Bentham then well, yeah, I, I'd very much love to, actually. I don't know if uh, this is the appropriate time to maybe start with a bit of a confession about Jeremy Bentham and my teaching of him, because I think um, I've done him a great disservice uh, as j- during my time as a teacher. Uh, and I think I've only just sort of really realised the, the kind of intricacies and subtleties of his thought uh, and appreciate begun to appreciate his thought more recently because actually over lockdown, um, I spent time actually reading in full his kind of introduction to the principles of morals and legislation, where we get a very clear statement of his utilitarianism, which I'll go on to in a second. But I remember previously trying to think of how do you get this, how do you make students interested in in utilitarianism? How do you introduce this this moral theory? And with Bentham, I'd always tended to go to kind of um, the obvious and maybe the slightly grotesque. So we all know about, or if you don't know yet, it's worth looking up the auto icon uh, at UCL, where you see Jeremy Bentham's stuffed and embalmed uh, 
skeleton and, and, and head and all the rest of it. Uh, and that's a great sort of hook to sort of to you know show to students and get them looking at and realizing that this guy maybe is a bit a bit odd. But you know, it's something fascinating that that we have there. And then actually the other thing to say about that is I've always, I think, been slightly oversimplistic uh, about the way I've presented uh, his take on utilitarianism, and I've sort of misunderstood where he was coming from. I, I'm, the reason why I'm sort of going to this massive preamble at the start is because I think we can really, I think a lot of students and a lot of teachers, perhaps, I was one of them, actually come at Bentham uh, from an angle that isn't, that kind of just sets him up for the more sophisticated mill to come in. There's a nice little story that we're going to tell about, here's this guy who's got this simple calculating machine for pleasure the philosophic calculus, which actually is obviously a little bit silly, a little bit simplified, a little bit overcomplicated, call it what you will. But there's this, but actually when you understand what he's kind of aiming that at, and perhaps I ought to say what he is, like what he's actually talking about first, but when you understand that, you, you can appreciate Bentham and Bentham's philosophy and Bentham as a philosopher and as a human being, in fact, much better. So I do want to say a few things. Uh, maybe I'll get on with saying what he actually says about what utility is. And then I'll say a little bit about what, you know, why he might be someone we should take very seriously. So here we go. I always actually start with Bentham just reading the first couple of sentences of, of um, an introduction to the principles of morals and legislation, because there's some of the most ringing words uh, in, in the philosophical canon of the, sort of the, uh, the recent past, I think. That's great statement. You know, the principle of utility, what is it? That wonderful statement, mankind governed by pain and pleasure. And then he says, nature has placed mankind under the governance of two sovereign masters, pain and pleasure. It is for them alone to point out what we ought to do, as well as to determine what we shall do. That sums it up, doesn't it? Pain and pleasure, those that's the psychological constant of all of us. He makes this bold claim. That's And it's for those things, that that desire for pleasure, the avoidance of pain, that governs all of our conduct, all of our thinking about right action, that should, does and should govern those things. And then we get what this principle of utility actually is. And it's that principle which just says that any action should be approved or disproved to the extent that it creates the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people, the greatest happiness principle, or that it reduces the amount of suffering for the greatest number of people. And it's simple and it's magnificent in a way. And it's one of those things where, you know, talking about clarity earlier, I think students actually kind of see that. I think, oh, yeah, mm. that seems right. And when you think that he's aiming this, not just it's not just about personal morality. What should I do? It's much more this kind of thing about, well, how should we organize a whole society? What sort of moral rules, what moral principles should we use to actually make sure that we all rub along together and that our society works? And of course, his target, and this is where I want to get on to, I should, I've spoken maybe at length here, but why he's so bothered about that question, why I think it's so important to understand why he's bothered about that question is because, in fact, people's lives, ordinary people's lives, were so ensnared by this kind of labyrinthine and opaque English legal system that kind of um, didn't, people didn't understand kind of on what basis their society was running, the, the moral rules of their own society. And he's trying to say, let's cut away all of that kind of, decayed, diseased edifice of the English law and replace it with legislation, public legislation, that actually makes sense, that does promote the general welfare, rather than just lining the pockets of lawyers, who, as we know from you know Dickens and whatever else, were making a fortune out of veil of 
you know, legislation that actually wasn't for the public good. So <laughs> I think Bentham's really, really interested to understand his motivation in writing this. Of course, as well, yeah, he goes off to Oxford and feels guilty all of his life actually for signing on to um, the 39 Articles of the Church of England, which you have to do in order to study there, feels that kind of hypocrisy. And, what, and then sort of from then on in, doesn't take on an easy job as a lawyer, which he could have done. His dad was a Tory lawyer, a you know, ready-made job in the law, but actually <laughs> spends his whole time writing ever more complex treatises against the English legal system and its complications and thinking about how we can sort this out so that ordinary people can lead good, decent, honest lives. So I better stop there. I'm, so my confession is over, but that's my take on Bentham. <laughs> Get us going. We we, we we absolve you, Paul. That that because that was that was uh, really great. Actually, I think it gave us a lot of context because I think just my reflections from me. Yes, I mean I think not just at A level. I think probably at university as well. We will probably oversimplify Bentham, but I think for Bentham, for Mill, for anyone else that that we look at, it's really important to understand them in their context because they'll be probably arguing against something and it's really important therefore that you fill that in so it might seem simple or even simplistic but actually that can be a great virtue and it was particularly a virtue for for bentham because he's up against you know as you said the dickensian victorian legal system of jarndyce and jarndyce right michael dan anything to for from either of you to to add to that I, just, I think that's really a, a good point from Paul about, yeah, just recognising the, the benefits of this system, because we're going to probably talk about a lot of criticisms of Bentham as we go through this. But all of the criticism, I think, can be amounted to a different interpretation of what happiness actually is. And none of the serious disagreements are about this idea that we should be aiming for this thing that we want to aim for, which, you know, Bentham just calls happiness but there's lots of other ways of describing it and you could even argue all kinds of other ethical theories that that do completely different approaches to normative ethics are still at bottom trying to define this thing that we seek in life um they just have maybe a richer idea of what constitutes happiness and i think that really simplistic and egalitarian idea that you know all of us have a kind of common thing that we want and a common thing that we don't want and that should be a guiding principle is um is far more profound than like you say it kind of gets taught because we end up going well here's the starting point and then let's all kick him while he's down and show all the problems with it um and i think yeah i think there's definitely a lot of good in it even if we might end up complicating it and and, and sort of adding into the the sketch that he drew later on uh, michael um i think as well what i discovered in my teaching is I think I ask students do they agree or disagree with a lot of these ethical theories and it's the easy question to ask do you agree with Bentham or don't you agree with it but I think when you look read the text and go back to the original writings asking students what they find challenging in that idea what they found find profound in that idea and and trying to put yourself in the mind of someone reading that and you think well why is this a, this is a radical new idea to people and this is groundbreaking you know there's a reason why Bentham is remembered and, you know, when I do, say, the trolley problem in Key Stage 3 or various different things or, or, or any time we discuss ethics, a lot of the time I find that a utilitarian viewpoint at least instinctively comes out and you think, well, this is all rooted to this person and it took someone to codify that and think about that. So trying to think about why was it profound, why does it challenge people, what was it challenging, yeah, I think I agree. It gives you a better understanding of Bentham rather than just a simple agree or disagree 
And I think that's true for all ethical theories. Even if you don't think they're achievable, do they challenge you to do better? Do they make you think about your actions? Do they make you think more deeply about the correct way to live is a far better approach than do I just agree or disagree with the the theory itself? Great. So um, should we just go through very quickly with the problems with with Bentham's theory as a kind of bridge then to thinking about Mill? Because then Mill's, I think, as Paul said, is then presented often as the more sophisticated utility. He's obviously reacting against perceived problems in in Bentham, and we'll get on to Mill in a moment. So what are the kind of key key concerns with with Bentham then? So, of course, I mean, I should have perhaps said more about this, but the, the philosophic calculus, the happiness calculator uh-huh. uh, that he puts forward, where he kind of goes through a list of these different considerations that one should have in order to try and work out how you work out what the greatest happiness or the greatest number is going to be. So we have to he says, look, actually, here is this calculation. You go through it in this order and you'll get an, get an answer. It talks about the intensity, duration, certainty. I, I remember actually very distinctly when I was an A-level student myself, learning the word propinquity for the first time yeah. uh, when I studied yeah. them. The propinquity, so like nearness, closeness, or remoteness of it. Fecundity, yeah, fruitfulness, um, purity and extent, all of those. So you go through all of those things, and once you've considered all of them, you get an answer to whether or not this is the right or the wrong thing to do. Now, obviously, the the basic kind of premise of all of that is that we can in some sort of very meaningful and uh, quantifiable way, measure pleasure. And this obviously leads us into one of those uh, famous problems as to whether or not you can, in fact, compare and measure pleasures, you know, the, the, what we you know, call incommensurability or you know, commensurability uh, of different pleasures. And that's obviously, so there's this kind of two parts to that that problem, isn't there? There's the, the idea that uh, one could decide on the, the morality of an action by going through particularly this uh, set of steps. And then also the further problem as to whether or not the whole system is based upon an assumption which isn't in fact tenable, that you can compare these kinds of pleasures. And obviously it's quite easy to come up with examples of incommensurability of pleasures. You know, it's good fun perhaps to go fishing down the canal. (laughs) And it's, you know, how does one compare that with going to the football or, listening to music or et cetera, et cetera. And the students find that quite easy, I think, to to see that that incommensurability yeah. problem is, is fairly does it, Did any of your students ever ask you what pushpin is? Well, it's as good as poetry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so um, it's a pub game, isn't it? It's, one of, it's a bit like, is it, it bar? Is pub game. Like, yeah. yeah, so... Um, that's what I say, but I don't know what that is. I say, oh, it's a pub game they used to play, yeah. and that's as far as I know. <laughs> I'd just ignore it and update it and just say, would you rather have a, a nice meal or a Big Mac? And that's how I, uh, I quickly update it and brush over Pushpin. Well, Bentham for, for today, uh, Michael. Um, go on, Dan. I was, I was going to say that one of the problems with the calculator as well, um, that, that I've always sort of liked teaching um, since a, a version of this problem was taught to me when I was at university um, by a guy called Perry Roberts, but it's... Um, it's showing that you can skew the calculus basically to, to work in, in your favor. If you're particularly nefarious, if you've got this perfect calculator calculator and all you're doing is going, well, if I get more pleasure than we get pain out of it, then it's the right thing to do. And the example, and this was sort of pre the internet at its current grotesquery. The example we were given at university was, you know, if I want to just kill one of you, um, as long as I can get the majority of this lecture theater to agree 
that that would bring us some joy um there's more of us than there are of you and even you know your family would be very sad that we we murdered you but between us if our families are happy that we're happy um and although it might be a very um you know a, a quick pleasure for us and a long-term sadness for, for you, your family we could film it and then that would make sure that other people could get pleasure from it later a sort of snuff video so nowadays i update that myself and say you know we've got live streaming we can stream it on the internet we can get people all around the world we don't have to send a, a vhs tape around but if we could get in a classroom of you know 20 students uh, if we could get 19 of us to agree on who we want to to, to kill, and it would bring us great pleasure, and it would great, great long term pleasure. We'd watch the video back and enjoy it. If we pick someone with a very small family, and we've all got bigger families, and we sell it online to as many people as could possibly enjoy it, then it seems that according to just the calculator, we've skewed the data so that we end up with a massively good uh, thing to do that will bring you know definitely some severe pain, but to a very small uh, you know minority in the classroom or in the world, in fact. Um, and that tends to grab the students as they sort of realize that, you know, any one of them could be the one, <laughs> the one person that we all turn on. So I think that's a, a definite problem that students sort of tend to latch onto with the calculator that like all sort of rigid systems of calculating value, if you can skew that system, you end up with a bad mechanism for objectively finding out what is good or bad. Yeah, and that's a really good example because it, it introduces one of the main problems for pretty much any form of utilitarianism. There are one or two exceptions, but pretty much any form. But also introduces some really nice thoughts that get us onto John Stuart Mill as well. So, Michael, do you want to take us onto John Stuart Mill and explain some of the basics there? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, a bit like Paul said earlier, it's 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 good, I think, to go back to what John Stuart Mill wrote because the the good thing um, about both Bentham and Mill is they're quite readable. They're, they're not Kant, thankfully. <laughs> I'm sure you'll cover that in another podcast. Yeah, um, you guys are coming on for Kant as well, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll avoid making the pun. I probably can't. Um, yeah, good. Anyway, I always start with the fact that he agrees broadly with the principles that uh, Bentham laid out. So I think he says in his writing, um, all action is for the sake of some end and rules of action, it seems natural to suppose, must take their whole character and colour from the end to which they are subservient. So again, consequentialist, focusing on the outcome. And he goes on to say, the creed which accepts as a foundation of morals, utility, or the greatest happiness principle holds that actions are right proportion as they tend to promote happiness, wrong as they tend to produce the reverse of happiness. So essentially, I start with, they broadly agree on what utilitarianism is. Um, and then I, I, I tend to hold fire on the, uh, on the Socrates and the Fool, because I think there's a better example in Mill's writing that helps to to illustrate this problem. And it's basically he asks, would you swap your higher faculties, you, you know, what you're able to do as a human being, your plans for the future, your appreciation of music, your art, etc., to be a lower animal? So if I say, right, I can say tomorrow you become a pig and you can get everything you want uh, and you could get everything a pig possibly desires, and you're guaranteed to, to to not suffer all that much and everything that you need is there or you can live a life of complexity and difficulty, which would you rather have? And I think that kicks off some good good discussion that only a few have said they would like to be a very happy pig. Uh, the majority are happy with their lives and the, the joys and, and the, the tragedies together. 
Um, so that's where I go because I think higher and lower pleasures are difficult unless you read what Mill actually said about them. It becomes very simple to oversimplify it and just use very basic examples. And I think the the other key thing is is the idea of competent judges. So it's the idea that you can only really evaluate a pleasure or a good if you engage fully and you commit to understanding what that good is. And then you have to consider, would you swap it for a lower pleasure? Uh, so yeah, it's. I think the quote from him is, if one of the two is by those who are competently acquainted with both placed so far above the other, they prefer it, even though knowing it will be attended with a greater amount of discontent, I would not resign it for any quantity of the other pleasure which their nature is capable of. We are justified in inscribing the preferred enjoyment a superiority in quality. So yeah, that's that's where I go with that really. Great, uh, Paul. Dan, any thoughts about Mill? Well, I just think it's really interesting. I mean, all the, all of the talk of um, pigs and whatnot. We might wonder why that's coming out. But there's been a long sort of um, tradition, hasn't there, been of describing. I think it was Carlyle. It was he described utilitarianism as a sort of swinish doctrine, and Mill's obviously very keen. Um, I don't think Bentham would have been that bothered about that accusation. He'd have seen it. He'd have sort of said that's just kind of snobbery, and you know, pushpin is as good as poetry. But that need that Mill sees to introduce the, the qualitative distinctions, the idea that there are considerations of quality as well as quantity when it comes to pleasure uh, is an important move. I think it, what's really interesting is it doesn't really make sense in some ways unless you kind of get a sense of what Mill is sort of seeing as deficient in Bentham. And it's interesting, I mean, he's, he's seeing that... Um, Mills becomes convinced, perhaps through his, his kind of own life history, isn't it? He's got, had that famous upbringing as a child where he's been schooled by his dad, perhaps with the, some advice from, from Bentham on how to you know, raise your child as an ideal calculate, you know, utility calculating machine and, and, and boy genius, obviously, you know, read Greek at three and like, you know, all the rest of it and was chatting about economics with Ricardo when he was 12 or something. But the... He then has that midlife, he has a crisis, doesn't he, where he realises that, this is from his autobiography, where he says, well, I suddenly realised that if all of my schemes for promoting the, the general happiness came off, I wouldn't feel one jot happier. And he has this kind of deep, intense moment of crisis, you know, a, a teenage crisis when you, you all of the things that your parents have taught you are suddenly, you know, you've realised all of their ambitions and hopes and perhaps some A-level students might want to and perhaps some degree level students might want to kind of um, empathize with that thought. You suddenly realize, actually, even if I attain this, then it wouldn't bring me any joy. And of course, famously, he discovers, well, he, he, he reads poetry and, and finds, he gets reduced to tears, doesn't he, by reading something and, and realizes he has, he's not just this dry as dust calculating machine. He's a real live human being. And I think he wants to introduce that, as Michael said, into the, uh, into the discussion of, utilitarianism he realizes that bentham is vulnerable to that kind of criticism that he's producing this kind of dry mechanical yeah moral theory so we need to give it some quality some some life some flavor some poetry perhaps and of course final thing his theory of human nature is is very much grounded in that the idea you get it in the at the start of on liberty don't you where he talks about that we have to think of man as a progressive being he thinks about utility in the full sense he says when he's grounding like he, he says that, of course, all appeals ultimately are to utility, to the greatest happiness. But you have to understand what happiness really, really is. And that a human being 
is as, as Michael brought out, it's a very we're a very different creature from the pig. And so our happiness is going to be of a different kind, which is why we couldn't swap with the pig happily. And that realization that we can't swap, that we wouldn't swap, picks out that that very difference in the kind of people, the kind of being we are compared to the kind of being a pig is. And I think that's, that's really important to appreciate that in order to see why he's motivated to, to make that distinction between qualitative and quantitative calculations of, of utility, I guess. Yeah, I'm really conflicted with Mill always because I, I'm very sympathetic to this idea that there are better things, you know, you can make a judgment about pushpin and poetry. But I do think it's a judgment that we will always have our biases towards. And what Mill amuses me that he sort of just says, what I like and I think is the best is the best. He very much reminds me of the comedian Stuart Lee um, when he sort of says, you know, this joke is funny. You just don't get how funny it is. And if you were a better judge of comedy, you would understand. And I think it's very much like that, that the higher pleasures are the things that I like. And if you were a competent judge, you would agree with me. And if you don't, you wouldn't. And I think in my experience, um, I think it's really interesting because I, I, I would feel I'm a competent judge of my own, what, what makes me happy and different pleasures and things. And I think it really depends on the day. Some days I, I would like to be a, a pig, satisfied as a pig. And some days I, I'm, I'm happy being me with my higher pleasures. You know, I, I equate that to, you know, the days I watch some some really good television, like a sort of Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul, you know, much lauded show versus the days I watch a reality show like the Jersey Shore or something. And I, it depends on the vibe of the day and what I'm feeling. And I can acknowledge that they are better or worse, but actually in the moment, there's different needs for different, for different times. And I think the idea that you would always want your higher over your your lower is a kind of again almost he's trying to broaden out this idea of of happiness and take it beyond just base pleasure but he ends up making it more black and white than it than it needs to be and and it doesn't have the full tapestry of all the things that we we want a life to be which is what he's intending to do but he's very much based it on his own his own personal this is what a good life obviously is and sometimes we like these other things but we shouldn't and if we knew better we we wouldn't um, and that judgmentalism, which c- considering what Paul said earlier about Bentham from this very democratic, everyone's equal, we're all, you know, we're all the same kind of vibe. You get um, Mill coming along and go, yeah, but there is this hierarchy of pleasures and we should all agree that these things are better and worse. So I think it shows with one person one of the big problems with utilitarianism, which is we could all agree in the abstract on there's this good that we all want to achieve the most of. But when it actually comes down to saying this is what it specifically is, we can't agree. And even the pig thing, you know, I think he forgets what that we would be a pig in that scenario. So if you say to me, would you rather be a, a pig or a, a human who's satisfied or dissatisfied? Well, if I'm a satisfied pig, as a pig, I'd be very happy, I'm sure. And and he just doesn't account for that, for that whole mindset. He's still mill as a dissatisfied pig, really, um, as opposed to a satisfied pig, which is what he was he was offering. So, yeah, I find him very conflictive as a... I see what he's trying to do, but I think he smuggles too much of himself into it and ends up trying to write as if this is a universal truth when it's sort of just specifically true about him. This gets us on beyond kind of um, at least the most of the A-level syllabi and IB and and, uh, and hires that I've seen. So kind of some really interesting d- distinctions that you can get when you're thinking about utilitarianism, you know, at university level and, and beyond. So what exactly is the pleasure? Is it how you are experiencing it 
or is there what is often called objective list or something else? Namely, there's just a li- just a list of things, and whether or not you can appreciate them, they are the better things, right? The kind of thing you were getting at, Dan. So there's all those sort of things you could be measuring as well, and also what's often called subjective and objective and these utilitarianism and these terms mean different things across loads of philosophy but in this circumstance they often mean whether it's the thing that you know about and are appreciating or the thing that's happening to you that you don't know about right so the the typical examples given there are whether you think your, your partner's cheating on you but in fact they aren't and and your partner is cheating on you but in fact, you don't know about it. Which would you prefer? Which is better? Which is worse? Um, and the subjective one is, you know, just how you feel and what you think is happening, whether or not it's happening. And the objective one is, it really is happening, whether or not you know about it. And so we play around with those kind of um, perspectives as well about what we're trying to measure. Um, and that makes things a whole lot more more complicated. Shall I just bring us back to a summary then? And then we'll probably pause and then we'll go on to the next segment. So Thanks, all three of you, because that's really helpful, giving us Bentham and Mill. And so just to kind of tease out all of these things, we've got normative ethics, where we're trying to work out what we sh- what we ought to do, what we should do in moral philosophy. You know, all these dilemmas, all these problems, chocolate bars and start of life and end of life issues. And utilitarianism is, we haven't talked much about this, but I think we'll probably come on to this in the next segment. Utilitarianism is that is, is one of the most important theories that's part of this family of consequentialist theories where we're just trying to, all we care about, not the main thing, but the only thing we care about when it comes to acting morally are the effects, the consequences, right? And here what we're trying to do is maximise utility, specifically pleasure and, and pain. And then we've got to play around with all the various views of pleasure and pain and happiness and how we understand it, higher and lower and so on, right? So that's really helpful. So let's just leave it there. And then in the next segment, we'll think about more of these topics and think about what sort of utilitarian we should be. And welcome back. Uh, Before we move on to... This segment, this is just to remind you to check out our website. It's found on my personal website, Simon Kirchin, K-I-R-C-H-I-N. If you're intelligent enough to listen to this, then you're intelligent enough to find it. Uh, If you go to that site, you'll just see a list of the topics and the timetable that we're covering them in. Feel free to contact me, send us comments and questions, and we'll try to include some of them in the discussions in future episodes. Now, my fault, I forgot completely that we should be covering Mill's proof of utility so we can get the greatest happiness for the greatest number. So um, does someone just want to talk to us about Mill's proof of utility and perhaps have a go at defending it? Paul? Yeah, so um, worth just mentioning that Mill says the proof of utility isn't a proof in the normal sense of a proof. And indeed, he's kind of mentioning Bentham said this as well. It's kind of uh, the principle of utility is kind of one of those first principles that doesn't itself actually admit of a proof. You don't, you're not required uh, to prove it. It's almost like, you know, like an axiom in, in mathematics or something. But then he does well, there, there is a proof, which is, of course, that the proof that utility is something that everyone wants, uh, is that it's desirable, and that people do, in fact, desire it. That is the only proof that you can actually give that it is desirable, that people do desire that thing. So he gives the analogy with. The only proof that something is visible is that people can see it. The only proof that something is desirable is that people do desire it. And he says people do desire their happiness. It's just a, a fact about people. 
we do in fact desire our own happiness. Now, of course, as I say that, <laughs> if, if you've not come across this proof before, you're probably sensing the gears turning in your mind and saying, hang on, there's, there's something something wrong there. And of course, there's a disanalogy, isn't there, between um, something being visible uh, and you being able to see it, the proof that um, you know, this my, my cup is visible, I can see it. Uh, and also, it seems like the proof of something being desirable that I do in fact desire, it's, it's of the same kind of form. Uh, grammatically, I know it sounds like the same sort of thing, but of course, the word desirable uh, has in that has an implication not just that you do desire it, but that you ought to desire it, and it's that that's kind of smuggled in from by Mill, seemingly uh, that's illegitimate, and so there is you know, just because something, just because you do desire something, it does not mean that that thing is desirable. That's obviously problematic. What I would say in in kind of Mill's defence here. And indeed, Bentham's defence, he made a similar sort of claim, is if you don't think that, say, a moral rule or a moral principle or something is desirable, then kind of what else recommends it? What else is there to commend any course of action if it's not in fact desirable that you should do so? Now, I know we can probably think of counterexamples where we could think that somehow I, you know, what I ought to do isn't given by what I want to do. Uh, I had an example fairly recently of I had our, our fence blew down in one of the sort of the spring storms. A builder came along to, to replace our fence. And in that time on fashion, gave me a quote for a couple of thousand pounds, but did notice, he said, obviously, uh, if you pay cash, this is going to be the price of it. Uh, obviously, if you don't pay cash, I'll have to kind of add on a little bit more. And clearly, I could see there what the right thing to do was, which was to, to pay not in cash so that everyone paid their, their due taxes uh, and VAT. But I, I didn't. I didn't sort of desire that and it felt something that I didn't want to do, yet I knew it was the right thing. So you might think, well, that kind of proves that Mill's kind of wrong. Yet at the same time, Mill could say, well, actually, you do desire to be a certain sort of person and it is desirable to you that you're kind of seen as an honest man, blah, blah, blah. And so you do desire that. Why do you desire it? Because it's going to lead to your happiness. And so the interesting thing is always to say, what else is there other than one's happiness and that why else would you want to do something unless it was desirable? And it gets at that sort of something very interesting about our moral motivation. And if a moral theory doesn't give us something, um, doesn't provide us with a set, you know, series of moral moral actions that we actually want to take and would desire to take, then that should at least make us pause a little bit. So, yeah, that's my attempted defence um, of a kind of notorious howler, I guess. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. Just to say before I bring Michael in, nice to hear that you did the right thing and that everyone's paying taxes that they should be paying. Uh, In case any of your students are listening to this, Michael. It just reminded me of something, actually. And I I remember uh, reading Simon Blackburn's book. I think it was either Think or Ethics, and I can't remember which one. It wasn't 100% relevant to ethics. I don't think he was talking about ethics, but I think he was talking about the theory of knowledge where he talked about if you've got a ship on water, if your if your ship is well structured and floats, it doesn't really matter if the water underneath is a little bit uncertain and and everything else. If the ship stays afloat, you've got a system that kind of works. So you know, if you jump ahead to metaethics, you can really question any normative ethical theory. But ultimately, if utilitarianism is based on a little bit of un, unsure foundations, if it leads to a better society, if it leads to better outcomes, that might be a way of looking at Mill's proof that it's just one of those things that you just have to kind of accept for your for the rest of your system to work. And if you're happy with the system you've got, 
that might be kind of the best you could do, I suppose. That would be my observation of that. Yeah, certainly whenever I cover this with university students, uh, I mean, even though Mill calls it a proof, I say, in a way, calling it a proof sets it up to get a really good kicking because you're thinking it's going to be premises and conclusions and uh, and so on and so forth. And of course, it, as Paul points out, the word that often is on people's lips is equivocation, right? He's just using words uh, in different ways in what are supposed to be the premises. Whereas, in fact, what he's really giving is just a very strong motivation for believing in utilitarianism. That's what it really is. And once you read it like that, then it seems a lot more convincing and you can be a little bit more forgiving in the way that you've just indicated, Michael, right? It kind of works. What else could you be looking for? So, uh, yeah, I often think of it like that if, we, if we're trying to be um, positive about, about Mill. I was just say, I think there's a, a thing with, with all ethics when you've almost agreed by entering the conversation about what are we going to do or what ought we do, that you want to find out what we ought to desire, if that makes sense. So if what is a thing, we, we, we want that because there's some sort of goal that we're looking towards, we, there's something at the end of that uh, that we're trying to achieve, and that's why we ought to do it, because the word ought doesn't make sense unless there is some goal that you're trying to achieve with it, whatever the goal is we could debate but i think that once you've got that into it the question of like okay you desire it but but ought you desire it um is sort of missing the point that the mill is saying once we've agreed that there is something we ought to desire what's the proof of that and it seems that the the one thing that we all can agree on is we all desire happiness because that's the thing of all the things that are very different that we all desire at different times when he looks like i desire this and if I desire it and we all, we all agree we will desire it, then that's why we've got the general consensus that we should all desire the greater good and the, you know, the most happiness for the most amount of people. It, it sort of makes sense because we've come in at the end of that conversation saying, well, now we know there is something that we are looking to find out what it is we ought to desire. What is it? And I think that's why he thinks it's a proof, because in a way he, he thinks that question, we've already agreed we're asking and he's giving you an answer based on, again, what he thinks and assuming everyone <laughs> Everyone thinks the same, but there is a there is a, a, a definite defence there where you could say the bit of about equivocation. We've we've already kind of agreed that there is a thing that we're looking for, and he's just filling in that blank. Great. Okay. Good. So listen, let's move on then and think about um, one of those key distinctions in utilitarianism, and that's act and and rule. So I'll have a go first of all at, at explaining this, and then you can tell me, you can, you can mark me out of 10 and tell me where I, where I go wrong and whether I do well in your essays. So, um, so, so sometimes some students, uh, certainly at university level, kind of struggle with this. So, so let's, let's start thinking about these, these terms, act and rule. Act utilitarianism is really the type of utilitarianism we've been talking about thus far in very simple ways, right? So there's sometimes I find students say, oh, act utilitarianism says there's no rules, which is wrong. There's just one rule, which is maximize utility or maximize human pleasure or whatever it is, right? There's a thing you've decided this is the good thing. This is what determines morally moral goodness. And you think it's great. Let's have a bit more of it. And in fact, to get the best moral results, you have the most of it. You maximize it. There's always a standard question certainly in first year and beyond at university, where we say, was Mill really a ruled utilitarian? Because there's passages in utilitarianism where he's really concerned with, you know, the Victorian England he's writing in, he's concerned with legislation, he's concerned with politics, he's concerned with that phrase, I think we've used it before, the tyranny of the majority, 
right, where the majority always gets to vote and gets to create its society, but what's going on with the minority? And Mill was, of course, a great defender in liberal democracy where there have to be rights. So some people read him as, as a rule, Utilitarians. So what do rule utilitarians believe in? They, they think this, right? So we, we actually choose a number of different rules, and the rules we pick are the rules that, over the long term, across many situations, are going to lead to the best happiness. But your individual actions are right and wrong if they conform to those rules not if they can not if they maximize happiness in the moment um so the rules obviously would be things like do not steal do not murder do not lie and, and so on and so forth right so there's a kind of two-tier process so your individual action it's right or wrong if it conforms to a rule but which rules do we pick the rules we pick are the ones that over the long term across many situations are the rules that are going to lead to the greatest happiness the greatest number the most utility however we we phrase it and that's kind of typically that, that, that standard view of what you rule utilitarianism. But there's a big problem with it, which many people across the 20th century have been debating. And it's this, right? So imagine you're a person in a situation and you can do something which either is conforming with a rule that's set up, or you can do another thing which clearly and obviously maximizes happiness. So either you've got rule worship right? You do, you're just following this individual rule, such as do not steal, even though you could take the bread and feed lots of people who are starving, or you could break the rule, in which case you're just going to be an act utilitarian, right? So either you're going to be rule worshipping, you're just going to be following these rules, in which case are you a utilitarian anyway, or you could be an act utilitarian. And perhaps what we might do is take that rule, do not steal bread, and just add an exception. Do not steal bread unless you're going to feed someone who's starving. Oh, that's okay. That's a better rule. But then there can be loads of situations where you just keep on adding an exception, an exception, an exception, and it just collapses into the rule that's really the important rule, which is maximize utility, maximize happiness. So you've either got rule worship or you've got collapse. So some people think rule utilitarianism just isn't stable and you should just be an act utilitarian. Then we're back to all of the problems of tyranny majority and other things we'll come on to. Right. So that was a five minute potted thought of act and rule. I mean, how, how do you guys explain it and, and how do your students get on with act and rule utilitarianism? This I is when my quite... anarchism comes in uh -huh. my, when I talk about it. Um, because for those who don't know, I'm, I'm very sympathetic towards uh, anarchism as a political theory. And um, usually students d discuss the problems that you have, you know, what if the rule is this and, and you have you have issues with following it where you could break it. And I think the, the error with the distinction comes from a quite a limited idea of what rules are. And this idea that the rules have to be very firm. These are the commandment rules of utilitarianism. And like you say, if you weaken them and it becomes a weak rule of utilitarianism, you end up in act utilitarianism again. Um, but this is a similar thing when you look at the political uh, philosophy of anarchism and people say, well, it's lawlessness and chaos. And anarchists say, well, it, it can still have rules in anarchism. It's just a different kind of rule where we all agree for a particular function for a period of time that we should agree to a certain set of, of, of rules. And when they don't work for us anymore, we should jettison them and start some new ones. And it's about consent and agreement and things like that. But I think you can import some of that into, into rule utilitarianism and say, the rules don't have to be eternal, ever-changing rules because of the very fact that there's these problems. If you if you take a step back and you go, well, why did we bring rule utilitarianism in? It's because when we were going to kill the student and it made everyone feel bad, 
we sort of looked at why did it make us feel bad? What was the problem? And there's a sense of, well, I, I could be the person who's killed next. So we want a rule to protect us, right? So that's the basis of that, that rule. And all the other rules have some sort of rationale behind them. So then if you then go, but what if everyone follows this rule and then this happens and we can't maximize happiness? That same instinct allows us to go, in those cases, we need to make the rule flexible, but not because there is now no rule, but because for the same reason that we established the rules in the first place, we are finding a reason that the old rule doesn't work and we need to be more flexible. And if you look at rules as always being temporary and kind of based on agreement and and trying to achieve some sort of agreed shared purpose, in this case, maximising happiness, you can allow for a flexibility in rules without actually saying it all has to come crashing down. You can say, yeah, in those extraordinary circumstances, and you don't have to label it all and say, this is the specific circumstance where we can break that rule, because we kind of know um, for that same reason that this is one of those occasions. You know, we are, we, we put, I don't know, like, don't keep the, you know, keep fire doors closed. That that rule is a rule. And we go, that's because that's hopefully going to save some lives. But if there's something else, such as, I don't know, COVID, where it's like increased ventilation, we might go, well, we need to open those fire doors to, to increase ventilation now because there's, there's a there's a different reason. That doesn't mean the old rule is abandoned forever. It means that, you know, when we can close the fire doors again, we will, but there's a different priority in this particular moment. So I, I think if we're more flexible with rules, we don't have to get rid of all rules and say it becomes actually totalitarianism again because we are still acting on rules. The rules are just more loose than maybe they have, than people think they should be. But if you're okay with loose rules... Um, then a rule utilitarianism is still superior to an act utilitarianism and it doesn't have to become act utilitarianism. Good. So in fact, actually, if any of your students ever come to the University of Kent right in the final week of normative ethics with me, I do a whole kind of week on this and we think about something called particularism, but that's a very different sort of sort of theory. Anyway, there we are. Paul, Michael, you got any thoughts about act and rule? Um, only that it kind of builds into the conversation we were having and it will build into the criticisms, I guess, is I suppose I tell my students when they're criticising theories in essays, you can criticise the the building blocks and whether it's a theory that works and is sound, and then you can criticise it on a pragmatic level. So does it work for creating better actions? So, you know, you always have to balance those two sorts of criticisms, the consistency of the ideas, but also the pragmatism of do they work when it comes to ethics. And it's something to think about when students are writing essays, the kind of criticisms you might bring up, I guess. Yeah, nice thought. OK, so listen, should we leave it there, at least with Act and Rule? Perhaps just a, a brief summary and then we'll come on to the third segment. So we've been thinking about Bentham and Mill. We had that nice thought about proof of utility. It seems awful, but actually you can be quite sympathetic to it and see what Mill's trying to do. And there's all sorts of different distinctions you can draw about utilitarians. And we've actually covered quite a few already. But there's that classic one between Act and Rule and what's going on with the single rule of of act utilitarianism, or often called act consequentialism, you know, maximize X where X is a good thing, be it happiness or utility? Or do you follow kind of more specific rules that are the ones we seem uh, more familiar with, but then that creates some tensions with, with utilitarianism? Are you really a utilitarian in the first place? Are you just rule worshipping, or is it just going to collapse into act utilitarian? In which case, you're just back to quite a few familiar problems, a few of which we've already raised but we'll try and make some of them concrete in the next segment. (music) 
and welcome back. So through the first few segments, we've highlighted a few motivations for utilitarianism. Uh, and in this segment, we're going to think about um, some problems. Let's just rehearse some of those motivations for utilitarianism. Surely when we're acting in the world, we should be caring about the consequences and the effects of our action. And we heard at the start that actually human happiness is is a kind of basic thing that we all care about. Um, so surely it's a good idea to base morality around that, in, not only include it, but perhaps, and we'll come on to the problems, that this is the whole of morality, happiness, maximisation of utility. But also we've seen that there are versions of utilitarianism which is simple and clear. I mean, and, and the three of you were saying that some of your students are initially attracted to that simple simplicity and that clarity, and that, that's something utilitarianism gives us. But there are some problems. So in this section, we're going to think about three main problems, um, integrity, pleasure, but we're going to start with demandingness. So in the previous section, I was talking about act and rule, and uh, perhaps now we can introduce you know, what, you know, one of the problems with act utilitarianism, because it says... In every action, you've got to maximise happiness, maximise utility, right? For either for you or for everyone or whatever, you've just got to maximise it, right? So thinking back to to Dan's starting example with the chocolate bars, what on earth are you doing going out and buying chocolate bars in the first place? You shouldn't be spending money on chocolate bars. How selfish, right? You shouldn't be, you know, two bars for one pound or whatever you get, right? That one pound should be going towards buying the big issue and you know you shouldn't be buying loads of chocolate or loads of pens or your fancy new car or paying money out on a new fence right how dare you that money should be going to sight savers in africa or to the red cross working in ukraine or whatever it might be so the the thought is that utilitarian only has one utilitarianism only has one rule which is you've got to maximise utility. Every action, every waking moment of every day. In fact, you sleep just to rest so that when you get up, you can maximise utility. And the thought is it's going to be demanding of us all, all the time because we live actually in an unequal world and we should be devoting a huge amount of our time not to, not to recording podcasts or teaching people about some airy-fairy moral theories, we should be out there and actively helping people who are on the brink of starvation every day. And some people find that (laughs) quite unpalatable. They think it's a kind of big problem because it just doesn't incorporate all the moral nuance of our lives. But what do you guys think about that? What do your students think about that demandingness objection? Michael? So I kind of like this criticism because I think it corrects some of the preconceptions students can have of utilitarianism. Because sometimes when you reduce it down in your revision to what well, is the greatest happiness for the greatest number, that's the easy ethical theory. That's the one you don't really have to think about too much. It's not like Kant. It's not like natural law. Utilitarianism is the straightforward one. Um, and I always use this example of like buying a coffee or buying the chocolate bar because I think it shows that it's a, a much more complicated and deep ethical theory than maybe the headlines can suggest sometimes and I think it's important to keep that in mind and it can be I suppose a strength of utilitarianism as well is that it's not the easy option it's not the one that that just because it sounds straightforward doesn't mean you can basically do what you want but I think Netflix show The Good Place dealt with this quite well as well where it looked at us in a connected world and 
I think everyone was going to the bad place. Spoilers for the good place, by the way. Everything was going to the bad place because of the numerous actions are, or the numerous consequences our actions have because we're no longer localised people. So our goods come from all over the world. Our, even streaming and, and the internet, you think, well, there's no carbon emissions from that, but the storage from that is pumping loads of carbon into our into our atmosphere. And there's things that you kind of don't even think about that are causing huge negative effects. And I think it is a it is a problem for utilitarianism because when you think about, again, is the pragmatic outcome like if you think about it sorry from an idealist point of view you'd say well yes we should be promoting the greatest happiness but from a pragmatic point of view can anyone really be utilitarian on that basis and then you've got the connected problem with well if you've got two uh, decisions that can result in happiness of an equal type which one do you decide to take as well and there's there's always that so if you give it to site savers in africa and you don't give it to the rspca or action aid or, or whoever else you 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 know you could you, you're never going to fulfill all your moral duty so i think yeah it's a it's a real problem i suppose for actually being utilitarian rather than just subscribing to those beliefs i guess or those those ideas worth i mean perhaps just mentioning at this point and perhaps in defense of of utilitarianism there obviously peter singer and the whole effective altruism yeah. movement has made a, a great deal of uh, kind of just simply saying, actually, <laughs> just accept that this is what utilitarianism shows you very clearly, actually, what is demanded of you. And it's down to you to actually accept the the demandingness of it and kind of like suck it up and and be and, and accept if you don't do it, you're not being moral. Yeah, It's that simple. And of course, we've got the, the very famous, you know, the drowning, you know, the, the child drowning in a pond example. And you know, do you just walk past? Uh, of course, you don't. You'd be a monster. You go in, you pick the child out, even though you're going to ruin your shoes and your clothes, because, of course, it's a trivial loss in comparison. And it's that kind of, he says, well, look, we do know, don't we all? Yeah, we know that our actions have these these consequences. And obviously, The Good Place made a, a bit of a joke of that. You know, we, we do know the the way that our actions play out. And it's just a matter of accepting the moral responsibility. So if I was to defend the utilitarian against this ac- accusation of that, that it's too demanding, Maybe it's kind of more of a condemnation of us than it is of, of the theory. Maybe we're just, you know, and, and we do see people who are moral heroes, aren't we? We actually recognise the, the heroism of those people who, uh, I, I was re- hearing a radio programme where they were interviewing someone who was part of the effective altruism movement who had gone to hospital and donated a kidney to a stranger um, for no money and things like that. And obviously you listen to it and you think this is really weird in a way, but wow, what a guy. And you, yeah. you sort of recognise the – so whilst it is very demanding and perhaps too demanding for most of us, maybe it's a call to a kind of moral heroism, a kind of an ideal, if you want to give it sort of a, a romantic spin, I guess. So a little defence perhaps. And it has had a lot of social impact and a lot of my students have been really interested, especially we had a, a controversy at school around uh, one of my students got really into effective altruism and – started to talk about the you know, to talk to the charity committees at school saying actually look we're giving giving money to charity to you know left right and center in fact we need some sort of rational way in which we raise money and donate it and not just to the, the latest um, cause of the day but actually have a you know a well thought through rational approach to to giving money so that we can maximize the greatest good for the greatest number because what else would you do yeah that's um I think one of the interesting things that is both a defense of utilitarianism from this problem, but also one of the problems with it, which is when it makes us feel 
unhappy about the demands of utilitarianism, there's got to be a problem, just like we saw with the reason we started rural utilitarianism and, and all these different types of utilitarianism is there's, there's got to be some way of balancing that demand so that you can maintain the happy life. And we had a similar controversy at our school with the, the charity idea. Some Someone um, mentioned it to our charity people. And I think that points to one of those those things at the heart of it, which is people give to charities for all kinds of different reasons. And it's not just back to the hedonic calculus. It's not this is the most useful charity or this is the most um, charity that's going to do the most good because there's all kinds of reasons people give to different charities. And the idea that you always have to maximise it, and I think the um, singer generally defines it as, as it saves lives. He's sort of like, why would you give money to any charity that's not saving a life? Like that would be a waste of, of charity money. And well, there's loads of reasons because there's other things that that require money that make for a, a well-rounded life. And I think those are the things that make us happy. So you could say, and, and even Singer does say this because he doesn't say you should give as much money as you possibly have outside of bare necessities. He sort of picks an arbitrary figure and says you should give that much. Uh, which is fine, but it is arbitrary by his own admission because he's had to sort of set a rule and say, if you were to, you, you can give as much as you want, but if I said everyone has to give 99% of their income to charity because it's just, you know, unpalatable to imagine all the bad that's happening without you helping, we wouldn't be able to do any of the things that that bring life happiness um, or satisfy our preferences for the singer. And so he's had to set a rule somehow, and it, it is a completely arbitrary rule. But I also think there's an important thing that he says, and, and he's quite clear about this in interviews and, and things I've, I've heard of, of him. It's two separate things to say that it is wrong that we are responsible for allowing all this unhappiness to, to happen, that we could be doing something about, and that we have to do everything. And we can actually have a life that we know we're not doing as we're not maximizing as much good as we can be. We're doing it for our own personal, you know, mental health, whatever reasons where we go, this is for me, like the good life or the, the happy life. I can only do so much. But we can acknowledge, and Singer says, we, we need to acknowledge that we're still doing something morally wrong, but that that's okay. We will all fall short of what morality demands. That doesn't mean it's not it's perfectly moral to do that you just have to come to peace with the fact that we're not perfectly moral beings and some of what we're doing is morally wrong but there's reasons that we're doing it you know in in the way that you know i genuinely am right now there's money in my bank account i could be saving a life with and i'm not doing it and i can't just go but that's because i live in a culture where i don't save lives i sort of have to go well that's true and it would feel weird to wipe out my bank account to save all these people who i don't know but also looking in the mirror that is pretty morally bad on some level because I am knowingly letting people die that I could be saving. So I think it's recognising that there is that abstract idea of, of right and wrong and we, we can admit we're doing something morally wrong that is separate from um, what we actually are motivated to do, which is why normative ethics is so interesting because it's got to be motivating for us to actually act. And utilitarianism might be correct but it may not motivate us to do what we need to do. And what we need to do may be impossible to live a happy life, which on utilitarians' own grounds means we shouldn't do that. So it's a theory that maybe is telling us we should only do the, the most that we can because that is the balance we have to, to keep for a maximally happy life. Michael, why don't you come back in? 
Yeah, I just wanted to, I suppose, um, uh, discuss it from a student point of view. And, and mm-hmm. if you have an essay on this, it's, it's worth thinking about at the start of your essay what a normative theory is for. And obviously, you we asked to evaluate utilitarianism or the usefulness of utilitarianism. And is it something that just tells you what you want to think is right? Do you want it to agree with your preconceptions or do you want it to challenge you and to make you think about morality and to act in a in a way that you might not be able to achieve, but you know is right? And I think that's important when you're evaluating in any essay to think about those things. What is this normative theory for, I guess? And that that's, yeah, you know, in an in introduction, it might be worth making that clear and, and what you think a normative ethical theory should do before you evaluate whether it's effective or not. Great. Okay, so let's um, think about another problem for uh, utilitarianism, which has been bubbling away in all of our discussions so far, and that's pleasure and happiness. So does anyone want to introduce this this problem for us? Yeah, I mean, I've, I think I've been raising it a lot throughout the, the podcast, um, that there's this focus on pleasure as the the thing we're all aiming for. And, you know, Bentham begins by saying these are these sovereign masters, pleasure and pain. And it seems to me and to lots of people that that, that is true. But what we also aim for other things, you know, we might aim for connection with other people. And then someone says, oh, yeah, but that's because it causes pleasure. And you go, well, it's it's not because it causes pleasure. It's because sometimes connection can cause all kinds of headaches in life as well. You know, the, the more people you are connected to, the more loss you're going to experience when people die, the more arguments you're going to get into and the more you know chores you're going to have to do to get ready to, 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 to help people out and do things. Sometimes we want things that cause problems. We, we like freedom as well as, 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 you know, we like a bit of autonomy and uh, self-governance over our own person. But we also have to do that if we all have that, where we have to be mindful of other people. So we have to set limits on ourselves. And we recognise that there's all these things that make for for a good life. And it was um, Robert Nozick has this experience machine about, you know, plugging yourself in to something where you're, you're going to be, you know, have this perfect experience of everything that brings pleasure and, and happiness to you. It's just not real. Um, you know, so you sort of get this virtual reality almost sense of everything good happens. Um, you know, would you like to um, plug yourself in? And again, it's, you know, it's a thought experiment and you can say yes or no. And students often say yes, just to see what would happen. And, you know, you can't necessarily judge it on a, on a room full of students, but most of the time students would say, no, I wouldn't plug myself in because there's, there's something about authenticity of a life lived with all of the palette of good and bad. And that idea, which certainly those of us who teach um, religious studies, as well as philosophy with the problem of evil, um, this idea of some people say you need the bad to be able to experience the good. And part of a life of happiness is a life where you've got something to compare happiness against. And if you look at Mill's proof, which we looked at, well, I desire happiness. There's loads of other things we could say. I desire love. I desire, like I said, autonomy, whatever it is we desire. And you could then extrapolate that to humans. Um, So my sort of thing about a, a good life, when I think of it, is always, well, well, what have we all got in common? And there's more than just happiness. And I'm always suspicious of any ethical theory or any theory, really, that says there's this one thing that's the magic answer to everything. And my worry with utilitarianism is, yes, lots of things contribute to a thing we call happiness, but are we just redefining the combination of all these things as this word that's almost meaningless, where it's happiness, and what we mean by happiness is all these disparate goods, and and pretending that there's this thing we can all recognise when actually the thing we need to maximise might 
be made of multiple parts and they maybe don't all take priority or they take priority at different points in our life where we need more of one good than another and different people require different levels of goods at different times. So it's not as simple as going, well, we just need to maximise this one thing for everyone and that's the end of ethics. And I just think, yeah, saying pleasure or happiness is the only thing seems to not be true. Using Mill's proof on the same argument because there seem to be other things we all desire and therefore if true about happiness it needs to be true of the other stuff and even with happiness for me to desire happiness i also need to know what unhappiness is and i need to desire struggle and unhappiness to be able to enjoy that so you can sort of use all the arguments for it to say so it can't just be the only good when when you talk about nozick and the experience machine do do any of you have any students who would plug in I, I do. There are some who say, and, and it's the same students who, you know, when you talk about the matrix, red pills and blue pills, take the pills as they stay in the matrix and the same people who would want to be a pig who's satisfied. But I don't think it's obvious that they're wrong to, to do so. And their, their argument tends to be, if I'm plugged in, all I would know is the happiness. I wouldn't know that I've got rid of with the life I'm currently living. And so from the point of view of me in the experience machine, why, why would I not do it? And I try and sort of draw out, well, you've got to make that choice to go in and they, they accept that, but they say, but once I've made the choice, all that pre stuff is irrelevant. So, you know, why not? And to be, to be fair, it's hard to find, I don't know if any of you've got an argument against that, but from the point of view of the person in the machine, they're not wrong, are they? I find I have to tweak it because is isn't yeah, am I right in Nozick says you don't remember your previous life when you go in. That's right. Yeah. I always have to tweak it and say you will remember the life you had. You'll remember that you had ups and downs, but now you can only experience the ups. And I find that's a slightly more uh, appropriate way of dealing with it because you know what you're missing then, rather than the simple argument we will I'll be happy. I wouldn't be capable of missing anything. So if you can remember your previous life, I guess it makes them think a little bit more about what they would be missing out on rather than just what they would be experiencing. It becomes a wistful machine and not just a pleasure machine. <laughs> yeah. You have to live in a permanent state of wistfulness. <laughs> That's just life though, isn't it? Especially if you get a bit older. <laughs> yeah, all you got to look forward to is replacing your fences. <laughs> indeed, indeed. <laughs> Oh dear, suburban drudgery and yeah, gosh. But no, I mean, I, what, mm. do, am I on the wrong track? Do people think that there are things other than happiness that they desire in life, or is it? Am I doing the opposite of what I said? And am I redescribing happiness as other things? Because the argument works both ways. It's difficult, really, because I, I always ask my students when I when I do this criticism: is should we just go down the pub? <laughs> like, should we all just go down the pub, or do you want to just go home at this point? Because you'll be far happier right now if you're at home rather than listening to me at 2.25 on a Friday while I've been already talking for an hour. And most of them would go, well, no, because we want to get our results. We want to do well. We want to learn. It's not easy. We could get instant pleasure elsewhere, but we don't want to. Um, But then, like you said, is that just human flourishing or happiness in another form? Is it a higher pleasure and it's still therefore a pleasure? I don't really know what the solution to that is, I guess. Yeah, I mean, Mill talks about it a little bit. He talks well quite at length about how people might desire virtue rather than, say, happiness. And I suppose when I was not fiddling my taxes on my on my fence, I suppose I was I was prioritizing virtue over immediate happiness. Um, whether or not you ultimately cash out the desire to be virtuous in terms of you know the 
the, the happiness. I think, to, again, to defend Mo, I think I seem to be the one who wants to defend all the utilitarians, but not necessarily for utilitarian reasons. He does, I think he senses this tension and it's a real tension in all of Mill's work. If you read, well, if you read Utilitarianism Alongside on Liberty, you do see that he's really actually, he does appreciate individuality, genius, expression, yeah, the artistic yeah, poetry. I mean, the poets weren't a particularly happy bunch necessarily. Are they? Yeah, you got the the idea of the the artist suffering for their. Uh, it's almost the paradigm, isn't it, of somebody who prioritizes, say, beauty or aesthetic achievement over over simple happiness. And Mill's really sympathetic to that, actually. But in utilitarianism, it seems like he can't. It's almost we're exploring that tension that exists within his work. He sees that actually he's aware that the the majority can tyrannise over the minority. So in, in On Liberty, he makes sure that he really kind of safeguards the privacy of the individual to make themselves as, as unhappy as they want, actually. It seems like that tension of there are other goals than happiness. I think he's he's very aware of it. Maybe even Bentham is too, but is, is less kind of caring about it. But that's something that's always going to plague uh, the utilitarians because it just is so evident that there is more to our lives than happiness, unless, as you said, Dan, that you try and redescribe happiness in so many different ways that it's no longer that kind of simple notion of pleasure, which gives us a lot of the simple effectiveness and like objective moral choices that we get when we do some utilitarian thinking. It does give us an objective answer when we have a, an ethical problem. What should I do? Well, here you go. That's what you should do. But we recognize that often what utilitarianism tells us to do isn't necessarily what we necessarily want to do and then we get into those problems of moral motivation other forms of motivation that we might have other goods we might wish to pursue yeah it's it's good to remind us again of what mill is actually thinking i think paul because i think there is that tension i mean not just within utilitarianism but as you say across his works particularly when you put utilitarianism against on liberty i mean i think one of the main problems here with with pleasure is really just a practical issue right because i think dan has captured it very well right it's either one big thing in which case you maximize this whole big thing that doesn't seem very intuitively right in which case you've got lots of disparate goods and then in any particular situation you're thinking and which ones should i maximize right it's a practical issue in the practical decision making it just seems to to fall down i mean i think that um one thing we're probably not going to discuss very much but i'll just raise it just just in the mind for any students who are listening because i don't think it's in many of the a-level syllabi but certainly a big thing that we talk about when you get into into universities thinking about this is you know many people focus on the pleasure and the happiness a real really big problem with utilitarianism is that maximization so here's something that's good and then the utilitarian or indeed the consequentialist attitude seems to be, and we need to have as much of it as possible rather than having a different attitude, which is this is something that's good. Let's just respect it, not try and maximize it and have loads of it, but just treat it as it is. And actually from that comes lots of lots of interesting thoughts as, as well. In fact, that's arguably, some people think that's one of the main things that divides consequentialism and utilitarianism and other theories from deontology and, and virtue ethics. But then we're getting ahead of ourselves, I think, with that. But actually, that does, I think, go... Sorry, Dan, do you want to say something a bit more on pleasure and then we'll go on to something else? I mean, no, I mean, I think I think we've also covered that, that that's that's the issue. But um, yeah, I think your point about maximising it is, is definitely an important thing to, to, to think of. Because again, if we don't know what exactly it is we're going to maximise... 
we have that problem. I mean, the the thing that I always think is the future people problem of if we're maximising, you know, do we need to make sure there's as massive a population as is possible just so they can experience as much pleasure as many people can at a very low level rather than keep a population under control and having a few people who can really flourish in a lovely world where they've got all the things to really have a, a full and rich, happy life. Do we want, you know, numbers or do we want quality? And that comes back to higher and lower pleasures. But on a deeper level, what is pleasure and what is it that we're actually trying to achieve and maximise with utilitarianism? Yeah. So, yeah, I think the question of what it is is really a problem. Yeah, population numbers and things. We talk about a lot about that in lots of university courses as as well should we get on to a third problem though let's think about um integrity so i think am i right in thinking that the george and jim examples from bernard williams often come up in some of these courses paul do you want to just explain um, them for us yeah i could give a brief outline of um both george the chemist and and jim the explorer uh, if you like and and i think they're really interesting problems because uh, bernard williams uses them to uh, bring out perhaps uh, the way in which utilitarianism is almost too good, too slick, too quick as a moral theory, uh, and is too ready to give us an answer. Yeah, so the um, George the chemist example, um, just imagine that this guy called George has been offered, uh, like just maybe it's just sort of uh, compressed down the story a little bit, but he's been offered a job uh, at a chemical weapons uh, laboratory, and obviously that involves... Yeah, finding out all of the latest ways in which you can use chemical weapons, which are obviously a bad thing to kill people in lots of horrible ways. Uh, and he has to decide to himself whether or not to take the job. Now, he also happens to know that uh, if he doesn't take the job, uh, somebody else who's an excellent um, chemist, who is uh, also a, a kind of real want to please the boss type sort of guy, will come in and take the job in his stead. And we'll do an absolutely brilliant tip-top job of developing the very latest nerve agents and killer nasties. And he also thinks to himself, well, of course, you know, I could uh, take the job and be pretty incompetent at it, but just not so incompetent that I get the sack, but just kind of, you know, uh, make the whole chemical weapons producing business a little bit less kind of um, efficient, slick uh, and deadly. And so that's kind of one scenario. And I think what that brings out quite nicely is that there seems to be an obvious choice on a utilitarian calculation, which is that he should take the take the job. Yeah, he's going to be the one who's going to decrease the total amount of suffering that's kind of out there in the world from chemical weapons. The other example with Jim, um, we, we imagine that Jim the Explorer is kind of uh, in some, uh, this maybe dates the example a little bit, but we imagine that he's in some sort of uh, far-flung jungle territory exploring and he suddenly stumbles upon uh, a dreadful scene, a, a very kind of uh, shocking scene in which um, there's some villagers terrified who are being stood over by um, a bunch of soldiers, clearly thuggish and dreadful types, and they're about to execute a whole bunch of people, you know, 20 all, all the young men and uh, boys and, and whatnot in the village. And is, there is you know, about to be a, a kind of mass shooting. But the, comment, the commander of the troops sees Jim and says, ah, look, a, a, a distinguished visitor from overseas um, as a special kind of honour and perhaps to be generous to, to, the, to the villagers here. I'll give you, the, give you Jim, the honour of just shooting one of these guys and then I'll let the rest of them go free as 
you know, a kind of goodwill gesture. I mean, it's a pretty um, grim sort of scenario. But again, it's really, really obvious on the utilitarian calculation what Jim ought to do. Now, I don't know, whenever I run these problems with, with my students, they actually pretty much go for the utilitarian choice uh, each time. But Williams reminds us, well, actually, there's there's something kind of missing here from the way in which we think about both Jim and indeed George. They're, let's think about those people as moral agents, as actual people who have real lives in which they have uh, commitments and um, things they regard as important in their lives. And what they're about to do, so say Jim does shoot the one, or if George does take on the job in the chemical weapons factory, that's going to have really, really important implications for the kinds of people Jim and George are going to be. It's going to, it's going to make them into something which you know, the, the consequences of what they're going to do are going to have huge ramifications on them. And it's not clear that we should just do a utilitarian calculation on those on those consequences and just say, oh, okay, you're gonna George is gonna get three units of displeasure versus everybody else's you know, 20 units of pleasure. And I guess what Williams is really kind of pulling out is the the tragedy of some of the choices that we make, the tragic character of a lot of our moral choices, which utilitarianism fails to pick out. It just misses out on what it's like to be a real human being faced with some really tough choices which don't seem to actually get answered. They get answered all too quickly, in fact, by utilitarianism, and which misses out on the character of what it's like to actually make that choice. And we can all think of tragic choices that we might be making that don't seem readily reducible to that. You know, putting parents into into care homes and things like that with you know de- dementia we've got possibilities of people on life support machines and so on where you know do we switch them on switch them off keep people going and there's and it somehow doesn't seem right just to say okay let's do the calculation and see what you know the the philosophic calculus machine spits out because it'll spit out an answer readily enough and you know jim the explorer very easy to see what the utilitarian answer is we've got an objective right thing to do but somehow it feels, I think Williams is really good at bringing this out, it feels like we're missing something about the, the what it's like to be a moral agent. And it's an important thing. It's not just some sort of arbitrary, um, yeah, irrelevant calculation. And that, I think, is quite a subtle and powerful argument. Although, of course, the utilitarian can say to, say to Williams, well, what do you do? You've still got to make a choice. And at least we guide you uh, in giving you a choice to make, whereas maybe you just give us give us a, a recipe for paralysis. But as a as a criticism, I think it's very subtle and, and interesting to to focus on the fact that I can't really be neutral in my own case. I'm not impartial about my own commitments, and it feels that that's not an illegitimate thing for me to care about. You know, I should care about what kind of a person I am and how I make my moral choices. Yeah, good. Thanks, Paul. Uh, Michael. Um. I, I, I talk about Bernard Williams' objections, but the way I try and bring it down, because it is quite a subtle, a subtle criticism, is I talk to their talk to them about living a utilitarian life. So if you've got one friend who you've made a promise to about going to see, say, a three-hour French film subtitled that's really, really important to them, or five of your mates want to go down the pub and get absolutely smashed on a Saturday night, but you've made this promise, technically speaking, 
you create a, a greater amount of happiness by going to the pub than you would by keeping your promise to your friend. So I kind of bring it down to kind of that level and think if you're living, there's nothing really important other than pleasure. So all the promises you make, all the kind of virtues that you have, the kindness, the the support of your friend is ultimately jettisoned in favour of increasing happiness. And I think that's a way of bringing it down to a level for students to kind of what would it be like to live that kind of utilitarian calculus on a day to day level where nothing really has lasting importance other than the pleasure. And I think that's a that's how I communicate to my students anyway. I don't know whether that's a, an unfair corruption of Bernard Williams' objections, but I feel that's quite effective when I'm explaining it to them. That's certainly what my students will be learning about next time. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I think that's really good. I mean, that, that kind of grounds it very nicely, I think. Yeah. I mean, I, I love these examples. Uh, and there's there's so many things going on with them and, and how people have, have used them in the way that uh, people often use uh, Bernard Williams' uh, thought experiments and, and his his writing. So I think, you know, going back to what you were saying, Paul, about that partiality, right? So there's something where uh, I'm going to be partial actually to, towards, you know, my life or, in fact, the people I'm very close to. So Dan mentioned Bernard Williams talking about, you know, saving my wife or, or saving a, a stranger. I think that the key thing for me is that for Bernard Williams – Sometimes saying, you know, when someone says, well, why did you save your wife rather than a stranger? It's enough to say, because she's my wife, right? And that's it. That stops the argument. That's enough of a moral reason. You don't have to then say, because this phrase often comes up, one thought too many. It's not that, oh, I've saved my wife. And people who typically, if, if everyone saved their wives or their their husbands or their significant others, then life would go better and we'd all be maximizing happiness. No, 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 no. You don't need to go that far. It's enough to say, because she was my wife and that's it and that's part of the moral landscape just as integrity is and just as keeping promises is that michael said and in fact all of these things you can put into the utilitarian machine and crank the handles and get out your your answer but there's lots of things that are just missing that aren't respected in the right sort of way and i think those that's a big thing that runs through bernard williams thought and these two examples just encapsulate that so but good to hear that uh, sometimes your students struggle with it because students struggle with it at university as well and trying to get at get at what's going on because it's quite subtle as you as you all say listen i think we should probably leave that there because done a, a hell of a lot on utilitarianism and i don't know how happy the three of you are feeling now um, having spent a whole evening in my company but there we are so listen perhaps, perhaps we should bring things to close so i think uh, we should thank paul thanks very much for being with us Thank you very much. Really enjoyed it and sort of very much changed my own thinking about utilitarianism as we were going on. So that's really an education for me as well as hopefully for a few other people as well. Great. Uh, Thanks to you, Michael. No, thank you. Thanks for the invite. And and I'll echo what Paul said. I think I've I've learned a lot tonight as well. So thank you to everyone for contributing and discussing. And it's been great. Thank you. And Dan, thanks to you as well. Thank you. And I echo what everyone else is saying. It was really enjoyable. And yeah, definitely helped maximise my uh, happiness tonight. Great. So listen, uh, I hope you've uh, enjoyed listening to us. Uh, I hope you can listen to some of the other episodes. Please do check out my website, which is Simon Kirchin, K-R-C-H-I-N. I've got a whole list of topics on there. Rough timetable, we'll be doing them in. If you spot something that's coming up and you want to email me with some questions or comments, please do so. And we're trying to incorporate some of those questions in future episodes. But with that, thank you again for listening and all being well. We'll um, be with you again for another episode. Bye.